Nick Villalobos is going to present to us uh, about ultrasound of the kidneys. He's one of the staff physicians out at Walter, uh, out at uh, San Antonio Brook Armory Medical Center. Um, he did his training in New Mexico um, and has kind of carved out a, a niche for himself as a as a focus uh, um, expert or relative expert. So with that, uh, with that and some air quotes, uh, Nick, it's all yours. All right. Thanks, Nikhil. Um, so, so today we're going to, like Nikhil said, talk about uh, Los Frijoles. Uh, for any of you that, that don't speak Spanish, sorry. Um, anyway, uh, my disclosure is I'm in the military. Uh, so none of, none of what I'm presenting should be uh, taken into context of being that, those thoughts uh, or ideas of the military in specific. So uh, don't call, don't call my, uh, my governor or at least the governor of Texas complaining about this presentation. Uh, so the goals today are to cover the basics of POCUS uh, and a little bit of the, the nuances with uh, critical care ultrasound. We're going to go into Doppler a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, its POCUS usefulness in terms of uh, getting into the chronicity of, of renal disease, uh, going into infection, uh, we're going to talk about vexus because how can I not talk about vexus with kidneys? Um, and then I'm going to try to convince you guys uh, why you should start using uh, renal ultrasound uh, in your POCUS examination if you aren't already doing that. I'm presuming that the majority of people logged onto this call already using POCUS in their everyday practice. Um, this is more so just to kind of expand what you're what you're ultrasounding basically. Uh, I have a few questions built in. Uh, they're they're poll everywhere questions. So if you don't mind, just texting two two three 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 to to NV three zero three, and that'll get you into the into the uh, Quizlet thing. Whatever. I, I hope that people don't take POCUS as a you know, as a biomarker of the ICU per se, because, you know, since I've, since I've been in training and now practicing for a couple of years, I've seen biomarkers come and go yearly. Uh, and people kind of debate these things like, like as if you're an early adopter or not uh, in terms of their usefulness. Uh, I think, I think a lot of us know now that POCUS uh, is, is here to stay. Um, and the more facile that we as practitioners get with this, the the better that we can help the patient and answer our own clinical questions. Uh, it'll kind of aid in the way that you practice as a clinician in the ICU. All right. Uh, and I bring that up in the context of if you like reading outside of, of work, uh, this, this book that I would recommend, uh, it's called The Signal and the Noise. Uh, I thought it was interesting because we get a lot of noise in the ICU uh, by way of of uh, labs that we get by vitals and and literally by the noise that we have in the ICU. Uh, so a lot of what we pick up uh, in our decision to use clinically, uh, we kind of assume that to be a signal uh, in making our predictions every day. Uh, so I, I hope to explain to you guys why I think uh, POCUS and specifically renal ultrasound uh, is going to be a useful signal to you. Um, so as I go through this presentation, kind of take everything into that account, whether or not, and again, at the end of the day, this is for you to consider using or not. So this may be for some of you just noise, um, uh, or like I hope to explain uh, a signal. Uh, 
I'm not going to teach you everything about POCUS or uh, renal ultrasound in one 30 to 40 minute lecture. Uh, so as you take a few of these points that I impart to you, uh, I hope that you go to the bedside and actually use them. Uh, you're going to have to do a lot of reading on your own. Uh, and the next thing that you're going to have to do is try to teach what you are picking up to somebody else. That's probably going to be the best way that you could solidify the information that you're that you're acquiring. So this is this is the Feynman technique. I know it's kind of uh, a little blurred in, but uh, simple thing. I know we do this every day, but uh, it's worthwhile to state out loud. Okay, uh, a little a little historical context. Uh, so ultrasound, specifically POCUS, is is fairly new. Um, in the 50s is when they first developed a handheld B-mode device, uh, and this was to detect uh, breast tumors. Um, I'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, a French guy, I think he's a French guy, I don't know, I could be wrong. But in the 50s, Gaetan uh, modeled venous return, uh, calling it the mean systemic filling pressure, which we'll touch towards the end of the lecture. Uh, in the 70s, uh, they started implementing spectral Doppler uh, into into the handheld devices, uh, which again, kind of recent, uh, and not really until like the early '90s uh, was was the ICU implementation of uh, POCUS really a normalized thing. <clears throat> so now, more recently, uh, in 2019, uh, the critical care echo exam went live. So again, really new kind of more or less a benchmark for people that are using POCUS every day to try to achieve a certification in, uh, which I recommend to all my fellows to, to kind of, if not take the exam, acquire the skills that they could feel confident in taking the exam. Uh, again, Vexus became a thing, uh, which we'll go into later. Uh, and POCUS was really introduced into the critical care board. So I thought it was interesting. I had a question on dynamic LVOT obstruction whenever I was taking my boards. It was, yeah, it was cool. I mean, really, it's it, this is becoming somewhat of a standard of care for all intensivists to get facile with. Uh, so in terms of renal ultrasound, so it's it's building evidence still. It's still fairly, a, I would say, a nascent thing in terms of uh, critical care ultrasonography. But uh, these are a couple, these are a couple studies that I, I looked at recently. So in terms of renal ultrasound, um, this study looked at a cohort of patients that that noted that out of the patients that were ventilated, 89% had an AKI, uh, and 57% of those patients uh, had end-stage renal disease. So uh, is there a signal towards AKI predisposing you to, to go into hypoxic respiratory failure needing ventilation? Uh, who knows? Maybe not, but uh, again, take it as a signal or just noise. Uh, ischemic reperfusion injury uh, happening uh, during bypass surgeries. Uh, 30% was noted in this study. Uh, and again, kind of going into what we're going to get into, you can look at the renal size, the parenchymal thickness in terms of its echogenicity uh, to help decide whether or not the patient has an AKI or a CKD if you didn't already have that information at hand. So this could potentially help make predictions for you in the ICU, or you can use this to help make predictions in the ICU. All right, so uh, I, I made this uh, to give me a percentage, so I don't get uh, so I don't get butt hurt if uh, only two people answer. But uh, if you text it in two two three 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 to that number, 
try to give me an answer to what you think the most common pathology is on a renal ultrasound. And I'll give you guys uh, a minute or two. I know there are a few Bamsi people on the call, so I'm, I'm really rooting for you guys to at least text something. And then we'll see if I could pull up the, the responses here. There we go. All right. Nice. So we got a nice spread. Okay. So, so 10% of people said stones, uh, 30% hydronephrosis. Again, you guys can read this. Uh, so most people said cysts. So that is correct. Uh, approximately 20% of the population will have cysts. Uh, 50% of people aged 50 or older will also have at least one cyst. Uh, and then 20% of the people said none of the above. Uh, yeah, I guess maybe if, you, maybe if you're the one looking, you might not find anything. Uh, no disrespect, but it is uh, user dependent. Okay, uh, going into the cases. So this is case one, uh, kind of an interesting case. 56-year-old lady came in for an outpatient um, cath. She had a dissection of her LAD. Uh, which which got her put on VA ECMO. Uh, we got consulted actually after she was already off ECMO. She was on the floor uh, and the consult was for the patient being hypotensive with low MAPS despite volume resuscitation and she had newly become anuric. Uh, so we, we go bedside, the patient's trached uh, and she's actually I don't remember if she was on, if they put her back on the ventilator or, or if she had the collar, uh, if she had the tray collar on. But anyway, she was complaining of abdominal discomfort. So we put the probe on her belly uh, and we see this heterogeneous thing uh, occupying space in her abdomen. Uh, you guys can see there's a hyper, hypoechoic uh, space within this heterogeneous ball of stuff. Uh, and we we kind of chalked it up to being uh, blood, uh, new and old blood. So that saved us a little bit of time, uh, as you guys you guys probably have experienced uh, when you order a stat CT uh, for somebody on the floor. Um, you can be waiting two hours before you get any any answers. Uh, so we saved some time doing that. Uh, and then we started looking at potentially why she might be anuric. So we look and we find this. Uh, this is this is on her right side. So we're looking at the liver parenchyma here, uh, and we see a bunch of anechoic spots. So um, we have some hydronephrosis, uh, likely due to the rectal sheath hematoma that she developed. Uh, and this lady later on was found to have a, uh, a genetic bleeding disorder. I don't remember what what exactly, but uh, she ended up getting that that rectal sheath hematoma, which was pretty significant, actually causing bilateral uh, obstruction and hydronephrosis. So uh, when radiologists grade hydronephrosis, they they go through all these all these fancy things. Um, it's when I grade hydronephrosis, uh, this is how I grade it. So 
uh, a if it looks kind of bad that's probably not the reason why they're in the ICU or having anything to do with the ICU or if it looks like this that's probably really bad and I need to try to figure that out so um, that's just the way that I do it uh, I try not to complicate things I'm just a simple uh, country doc out here in Texas uh, and and for you people that are learning the trainees uh, the golden rule in learning, and it's taken me a very, very long time to get half decent at doing POCUS myself, is that uh, you are going to suck at it initially, but you have to try if uh, if you're interested in learning. Uh, so this is actually, and this is a good resource for anybody getting into it, uh, the Atlas of POCUS. Uh, this is a clip showing what they call as moderate hydronephrosis. So a lot of it is just calibrating your eyeball. Uh, into noticing what normal and pathologic is. So, yep, you're going to suck. Sorry. Okay. Uh, another thing, like I mentioned too, timing is the crux in intensive care. Uh, if we would have potentially waited an hour or two for the patient to go and get a CAT scan, we would have been you know, we might have forgotten about uh, about the patient's abdominal pain in the meantime, while we were doing a workup and sending an FE urea or whatever to trying to figure out her her uh, her kidney disease and and oliguria, or we uh, or as we did, uh, send her immediately down for a, a CT um, with contrast to notice that there was active bleeding into the rectal sheath, uh, and urology was already consulted, so we were able to get. Um, that acted on immediately. Uh, I thought this was an interesting case. This is also from the POCUS Atlas. Somebody had a very similar case to ours. Uh, they took much better ultrasound images than I did. Uh, what you see is that they're putting power Doppler over this anechoic space to look for active extravasation or bleeding uh, into the hematoma, which is a good party trick. Uh, but as we do in the ICU, uh, we send people to the truth scanners. Okay. Uh, like I mentioned, it is user-dependent. Um, hypoechoic can mean, can mean fluid. Uh, what kind of fluid? That's, that's hard to kind of discern. Uh, so it can mean blood, pus, uh, or something else. Uh, actually, in this, sorry, in this clip, uh, you see this looks potentially like maybe mild, maybe moderate hydronephrosis kind of emanating from the renal pelvis. Uh, but when you put color onto that area, you notice that it's it's actually an AVM. Uh, and you didn't necessarily diagnose the AVM with ultrasound, but you got an idea that that was a very dilated blood vessel. Uh, and you maybe decided to do an MRI uh, to figure out if that was an AVM. So like I mentioned, cysts can look like hydronephrosis or hydronephrosis can look like cysts. Uh, and we'll talk about differentiating that. Um, you can see you could see stones that twinkle, or you could see stones that cause uh, shadow. Um, <clears throat> so this this actually is a is an image of a patient that had not hydronephrosis, but actually cysts. The one way that you can really differentiate that is looking at where the anechoic area is emanating from. Uh, is it coming from the pelvis, or is it just starting anew in the parenchyma? Uh, and if it's not emanating from the pelvis, then it probably tells you that it's a cyst. Like I mentioned, this is going to be the first and only image of the bladder that I'm going to show you guys. Uh, sorry for all the bladder fanatics. Um, this is the, the twinkle effect. Uh, what that's 
what's that what that is showing us is that there is some aliasing around the area of a stone um some people think that having that quote unquote twinkle effect is secondary to how rigid or um kind of a mixed component of the stone is again non specific uh, but if you do see that or if you see that in the kidney that might be it might be an indication that there's a stone um, and especially if it's causing a significant amount of hydronephrosis, then maybe you want to act upon that. Uh, and I'll, I'll reiterate this. POCUS, again, is, is a tool to build upon your diagnosis, but not the singular tool. I know a lot of, a lot of uh, early learners uh, get super hyped up about this, and they, they go to the bedside, and they're doing it for everything, uh, and they feel like they're able to diagnose absolutely everything using POCUS. Again, this is this should be used in part of your assessment, but it shouldn't be the singular thing. All right, so the the ground rules with with kidney pocus. Uh, each bean measures about anywhere between nine to twelve centimeters uh, lengthwise, uh, or four to five um, the other direction. <laughs> Any difference between two centimeters is abnormal uh, between left and right. Um, a large kidney may suggest that there's an acute injury. Uh, a small bean may suggest that there is end-stage renal disease or uh, pretty progressive CKD. Now, is this written in stone? Of course not. Uh, again, this can lead you in that direction. Uh, if you have a number of these things, say, uh, if your kidney is small, uh, if it looks calcified uh, and uh, it's bilaterally uh, small, uh, then that may mean that they have CKD secondary to what? That's for you to figure out. Uh, if the cortex is very thin, uh, it's oftentimes seen with hydronephrosis. Uh, it can be thick, seen with an infection. Again, these things aren't written in stone, but they can be a signal towards that diagnosis that you're trying to make. Uh, and the more echo, echogenic, meaning the more hyperechoic it is versus the liver or the spleen, potentially that may mean pathology. Uh, so for instance, if somebody, if somebody has glomerulonephritis, their, their kidney parenchyma uh, and cortex might be more hyperechoic uh, than the isoechoic liver or spleen next to it. Uh, again, this is this is a nice uh, netter's picture of of what we're looking at: the pelvis, the pyramids, and then the cortex on the outside. What you're going to be seeing is something that looks like this, and uh, this in specific. So this is a picture of a quote unquote normal kidney. Uh, as you guys probably see, there is some fluid around around the liver, uh, which would be abnormal. Uh, and again, to go through the pathology, because if you don't understand what you're looking at, then you're probably going to shoot yourself in the foot. So this is the pelvis. Again, there's there's fat. It's hyperechoic. That's normal. Uh, this is a very subtle pyramid, again, which would be normal. The more chronic disease uh, patients with uh, maybe end-stage renal disease may have a more pronounced pyramid. And then this area towards the out towards the outer edge of the kidney is the cortex. Again, normal measurements, uh, lengthwise nine to twelve, cortex about one to two centimeters. Uh, we'll leave it at that. So, and, and if you guys have any questions as I go through, please put them in the chat. Uh, I'll ask Nikhil to 
to round it back in after I'm done. Or if you have a burning question, you could just stop me. I won't be offended. Okay. So here's another question. I think we had a pretty good turnout on the first one. I'll give you guys a minute or two. Um, I didn't go into this, so I'm interested to see what you guys think. But uh, which one of these is not criteria for a renal cyst? Oh, Well-defined, round, and anechoic. Uh, increased through transmission. So what, what that means is that you're able to it kind of magnifies everything after that area. Uh, if the if the near wall, meaning the area closest to the ultrasound, uh, is that imperceptible? Uh, or if the area furthest away from the ultrasound probe is, is thin and uh, a little bit more hyperechoic or echogenic or, or none of the above. see how we did okay uh so the nice nice spread i like it i like it so the correct answer is is none of the above these are actually the criteria all four of these are the criteria for a simple renal cyst so it should be well defined round and anechoic you should have increased through transmission meaning that you almost have a magnifying glass of the of the ultrasound through the renal cyst there should be an imperceptible near wall. So you shouldn't actually be able to define the entirety of the cyst uh, with the wall closest to the ultrasound. The wall furthest away from the ultrasound should have a, a thin uh, wall. So if you see, some, if you see a very well-defined um, anechoic round thing, then question whether or not that's simple. Uh, could be renal cell carcinoma. If you see debris within uh, the, the structure, that also could mean that maybe there's an infection. Maybe, again, there may be renal cell carcinoma. Um, but it, it should give you a signal that there is something pathologic occurring uh, and maybe ask for further imaging. So, cool. All right. So <clears throat> this is our second case. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, you are seeing a brain MRI uh, on a renal ultrasound lecture. Uh, so this was a 52-year-old uh, lady that I saw recently. She came into the ED very combative, yelling. Uh, so, uh, you know, appropriately, I'm, I don't fault the ED doctors for thinking about this, but they thought that she was she was high on something, basically. And they, they gave her some benzos and they put her on Presidex and sent her to the ICU. Uh, I saw her the next day uh, after she after we started weaning the Presidex, and the first thing that she says when she wakes up is, "My back hurts." Uh, this is actually a uh, an MRI of of Pres, uh, so posterior reversible encephalopathy. Um, interesting, right? Okay, so. Uh, she was initially noted to have a blood pressure that was extremely high, which they thought was because she was high on something and that maybe that's why she was combative. Uh, but now that we're kind of weaning the presidex, the presidex, we found that the MAP was kind of low and the lactate was actually kind of high. And she was complaining to me that her back really hurt. So what do I do? As I often do, I put the, the probe of truth on her back. Uh, and I noticed that I'll kind of describe to you what I what I saw in my interpretation. Uh, so so here I think you guys could see my my uh, pointer. 
uh, is the patient's right. So you can see a little bit of the, of the liver parenchyma. Uh, this is a pretty normal looking kidney. I see the pelvis, I see the pyramids, uh, the cortex looks, looks normal. I, I probably wouldn't say it's, it's more or less hyperechoic or than the liver parenchyma. Uh, so overall kind of normal. Uh, here on the right, I'm seeing that the bean looks kind of small to my eye. Uh, it looks sort of, it looks less echoic, so more towards anechoic than, than the spleen. Um, so I'm thinking that maybe, you know, anechoic means fluid. Maybe there's, I guess, edema. So you have a small kidney and it looks kind of edematous. I don't see any differentiation between the, the, the medullary pyramids and the cortex so what I started thinking was, oh, maybe she has, maybe she has pilo. I'm going to send her down for a CT and I'm going to order it with contrast because I want to rule out pilo. So that was the decision I made. Uh, and uh, thankfully it was uh, the correct decision, at least I thought in this case. Uh, so in, infections. So before you, you get all excited about, hey, I'm going to diagnose a lot of people with pyelonephritis using POCUS, probably not. So approximately 25% of pilo is identified uh, by POCUS, mostly it's going to look normal. Uh, sometimes you'll have a signal again uh, for edema and that being more of a hypoechoic uh, structure uh, within the kidney, uh, which really kind of corresponds with that stranding, with that kind of fat stranding that you see on CT. Um, some people use uh, power Doppler uh, to locate because there may be a focal area of hypoperfusion because of that edema. Uh, so that's what this picture is demonstrating, that there's focal pyelonephritis. Uh, as you see here towards the bottom, uh, that power Doppler is, is lighting up the kidney and everywhere that is, that is perfused. Uh, and here, as they point out, uh, there's a small area that is hypoperfused. And in this case, it was due to pyelonephritis. So again, some of these things may have a signal towards an infection. Again, it's not 100% the odds are against you in, in, in being able to diagnose pyelonephritis using POCUS though. Okay. Uh, this is, this is a, a CT clip uh, just kind of showing uh, the difference between really this is kind of in the weeds, but uh, there's a thing that the radiologists use called the rim sign. So if you're seeing, if you're not seeing a rim outside of, outside of that area where you think is affected, you might actually be dealing with necrosis and not an infection. Again, kind of in the weeds, but uh, it, it's somewhat of a correlate uh, ultrasound and CT wise. Okay, <clears throat> so uh, the colors that we use. Uh, so why why would we why would we choose to use power Doppler versus just regular color Doppler uh, for the kidneys? Uh, and this. Uh, this is another resource that I want to point out to you guys. You guys probably already heard of this guy, uh, the Nephropocus guy. He's really nice. Uh, he offered to share everything on his website uh, for this purpose. Uh, and I think you should, uh, you know, if you're on Twitter or whatever, like follow him on Twitter. He has some pretty good information and uh, is very active on Twitter if that's your thing. Um, but uh, I'll go through, I'll go through why I specifically use uh, myself power uh, oftentimes over just color Doppler for the kidneys. Uh, so directionality, it, it, for color Doppler, it matters. Uh, this is the reason why you're able to see red and blue is yes, because sometimes arterial is going to be moving away uh, and blue 
is uh, or blue is away and red's toward whatever the color. So uh, you're seeing opposing colors, which can mean uh, arterial and venous. Again, it can potentially if you have the right angle. Um, uh, is there aliasing with color and not with power? That's correct. Uh, so the one thing that you'll have to adjust uh, with color Doppler potentially is your Nyquist limit. So that's what you're seeing off here to the side. So usually if you put the, if you put the phase array or the curvilinear probe, uh, again, use either or uh, dealer's choice. If you put it on abdominal mode, which you want to do if you're looking at the abdomen, the difference between that and the cardiac mode is the frame rate uh, and also the Nyquist limit that it'll automatically set you up with uh, is that specifically. So if you have a Nyquist limit that is not set appropriately, you may potentially get this color vomit. So this is when the Nyquist limit is set too low. So you're seeing absolutely everything, even even breathing pattern will give you color. Or if you set the Nyquist limit too high, you may not pick up absolutely anything. Uh, color Doppler doesn't have that problem. So that's an added benefit that I like using uh, renal ultrasound wise uh, is the power Doppler mode. Uh, and color Doppler is angle dependent. If you're, if you're 90 degrees, you're not going to pick up any color. Uh, and looking at microvasculature, which you're really focusing on in the kidneys, um, you can't really do that with color Doppler. So, so as in Texas, we say it's only for the biggins. Um, so that's why I give uh, one star for, for color Doppler for the kidneys and three stars for power Doppler. All right. So uh, your qualitative renal assessment is the equivalent of when the radiologists say correlate clinically. Uh, so this is a nice clip showing uh, pyonephrosis. Uh, so as you see, there's there looks there looks to be uh, some cysts maybe or some hydronephrosis. But the key takeaway is that there is a thick walled appearing cyst with debris in it. So what that is is pus. Again, if you feel confident in your diagnosis on POCUS, go for it. Treat the patient. Call the nephrologist or the neurologist or the urologist. Uh, and act upon that, or which the urologist will probably tell you, uh, get a CAT scan with ultra with uh, contrast. So, all right, next question. So loss of corticomedullary differentiation is specific for any one of these things. If you've been paying attention to the lecture, uh, you probably know what I'm going to tell you. And uh, none of this is very specific for any of it. Let's see how we did. Nice. ATN, mm, not so specific. Uh, again, like I mentioned, it, it can help you. Again, it's a signal. If it doesn't look normal, there's probably something going on. I'll leave it at that. Is it specific? No, it's not, unfortunately. All right, cool. Nice. I see the number going down. Good job. Okay. All right. Uh, case three. So now we're going to start getting into the more of the, the quote unquote sexy stuff. Uh, okay. So here we have a 54 year old female uh, history of a single vessel cabbage. She was admitted uh, after finding a, uh, a PVR of 12 uh, with a transpulmonary gradient of 20 uh, after a right heart cath. And you see they left the swan in. Uh, when she comes to the unit, she has a cardiac output that's anywhere between 2.5 and 3. Uh, so what we do is decide that we're going to start her on milrinone and also get her on some 
on some uh, pulmonary hypertension specific medications and let those and let those do their work while she hangs out in the ICU with us. So initially she has some renal failure. She has oliguria. Uh, her pro-BMP is really high. All right. So uh, I, I, I do this sometimes. I don't do this often, but I do look at the resistive index and we'll go into that here in a second. So uh, is this cardiorenal syndrome? Uh, pr presumably, I mean, you can say it is, uh, or you can be a little bit more specific. Um, so what I did here is I put, I put pulse wave Doppler uh, through the renal artery. Uh, and what you should see with spectral Doppler is that the renal artery is going to be going towards uh, the probe, and you're going to see your venous flow, which oftentimes is really the image that you want to see uh, on the negative axis uh, of the x-axis. So uh, this is kind of an optimal image. You're seeing you're seeing systolic and diastolic, uh, and here we measure the the systolic velocity and the diastolic velocity. Uh, ultrasound machines now all the, all the most of the CART-based machines will just calculate this for you. You don't even have to go into calcs or anything. Uh, it'll give you the resistive index. Uh, so with this patient, uh, we looked at this value. We said, okay, we're going to start milrinone after we've got a resistive index of about 0.7. Do we need to get, do we need to get CRT going? Uh, this, was, this was in the afternoon. So I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, do I have to put a, do I have to put in a, uh, a trialysis catheter in? Am I going to have to call the nephrologist in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We do this. We start her on milrinone. Uh, I also put some color or some uh, power Doppler. We have reasonable flow. Okay. Uh, I check, I check about an hour, an hour and a half later, and I see that the resistive index has gone down. Okay. I feel pretty good. I say, okay, I'm going to go home. She doesn't need a trialysis catheter. Okay. Uh, this in my eyes, and I, I know I'm leaving you hanging in terms of the resistive index, but we're going to go into it. So uh, this in my book came out to be more probably because of ATN. Uh, so ATN oftentimes, again, not always, is not the most specific thing, will cause a symmetrically enlarged parenchyma. Now, you're going to have variable echogenicity. Like I mentioned, the, the cortex may potentially be the same echogenicity or more echogenic than the liver or the spleen. Uh, and you're oftentimes going to have an increased resistive index. So uh, the, the second point, it's, it's kind of weird when you read it, but what, what that essentially means that if you have ATN, you would presume your resistive index to improve significantly after you treated the underlying cause for that ATN. So in this case, this patient likely had, I mean, they had a low cardiac output leading to hypoperfusion of the beans. We, we acted upon that hypoperfusion, put this patient on milrinone, uh, and the resistive index improved uh, pretty, pretty precipitously. Uh, so we felt confident that we were actively treating the underlying disease and we were going to get out of there, uh, quote unquote, unscathed without having to start CRT. Uh, this, image, this image just demonstrates a little bit more that the, that the medullary pyramids are more pronounced uh, in this case of ATN. Again, it's not the most specific thing, but it is abnormal and it is pathologic. <clears throat> All right. So the resistive index, why you have to just make these two measurements, the, the systolic velocity, 
and the diastolic velocity. Again, your cart-based ultrasound system is going to automatically calculate it for you. It's, it's that easy. It'll take you 30 seconds once you get used to using it. Um, the number that we're looking at is 0.7. So a increased resistive index tells you that there's, there's increased resistance within the arterial system of the kidneys. A lower resistive index tells you that there's less resistance. Uh, and this is, uh, so again, don't try to read into this too much. Uh, if, if the kidneys look abnormal for you and you can't quite figure it out, don't, don't lean on POCUS to just give you the answer. Okay. So again, a little bit about the resistive index. This is somewhat of a new marker. I would say not for the radiologists because they've been doing this for a while, uh, or even the transplant doctors, because there's also a signal, uh, towards, uh, renal transplant failure and resistive index, but more so towards uh, the intensive care world uh, and using it as a point of care measurement. Uh, so uh, there are some there are some studies that show that resistive index increases uh, as the as the SVO two decreases. So this may be a reflection of a perfusion mismatch and vasoconstriction uh, in septic shock. A elevated resistive index, like I told you, 0.7 is the number that you're looking at may be related to sepsis-induced AKI, a very high resistive index likely predicts that you're going to have that AKI for a long time. And maybe you want to start pulling out the, the, green, mean, the green mean machine, as they say. Um, overall mortality may increase based off of the resistive index. And again, there's a signal. This is not written in stone. Okay. And I didn't have any clips. So I just put a clip of me using chat GPT, which if you guys have not used chat GPT, it's, it's wild. Uh, it's pretty good, but uh, probably not better than, than your intern. Okay. Uh, last case that I have for you guys. Uh, so we got called uh, for a patient on the floor uh, that had an elective uh, AKA, uh, and this was post-op day two, uh, and the vascular surgery team said, hey, you know, they have a low blood pressure uh, and we've been giving them albumin for the past two days so they could so they can continue getting their dialysis. And he's not getting perineal dialysis. He's getting just regular old uh, HD uh, on the floor. Uh, and for some reason, he he's just hypotensive. So we go go bedside. Uh, and this is the subcostal view that we're getting. So we've already. We've already kind of established what we think is going on. Uh, and then to kind of seal the deal, uh, this is what we do. We decided to put spectral Doppler over the hepatic vein. Uh, we got the gate aligned perpendicularly to the flow of the hepatic vein. And you, you might be saying, why is he showing us this in a renal ultrasound lecture? It's pertinent. Okay, so the hepatic vein has an A wave and S wave, which corresponds to systole. Uh, and the D wave, which corresponds to diastole, uh, in vexus, if you guys have, as you guys have heard, uh, this corresponds very well with your central venous pressure. Why? Because it's proximity to uh, the heart, which is central. Okay, uh, and I like this little this little wave and kind of how they did this. I stole this from this guy, uh, our guys uh, on uh, on Twitter. So thanks for letting me steal that. Okay, so again, the the X descent will correspond with your S wave, which is during RV systole. 
and your D wave on the hepatic vein will correspond with your Y descent, which is diastole. That's it. I'll let that sit. And think of any questions that you have. This is a clip of somebody that has congestion. Because you would expect there to be more right atrial filling during systole and less so in diastole. So there's a reversal in this clip. Okay. <clears throat> so the punchline. Uh, this patient, so we, we saw this patient, we did that, uh, and they're on the floor. So we say, all right, we immediately need to take this patient to the ICU and start them on CRT because they're aneuric uh, and get volume off. So as we're, uh, as we're getting the patient up to the ICU, uh, and, and before so, we actually look at, so to kind of seal the deal for us, we looked at the, at the kidneys, we put pulse wave uh, over, over an area that we saw color, uh, and we see arterial here on the north axis, and we see venous on the south axis. And again, you intrarenal venous should only be a column uh, that you're seeing here that you see a, a systolic and a diastolic differentiation tells you that there is congestion. So we have two organs that are congested, congested in the splanchnic system, the hepatic vein and the renal vein. So that was enough information for us to say, all right, we need to go right now for CRT. Uh, and we probably need to start some pressors uh, because it looks like they may be in cardiogenic shock plus or minus uh, based off how uh, dilated that LV was. So uh, right whenever we get to the ICU, uh, the patient decides to go into VTAC. Uh, and that's what this clip is. Uh, it's in between, it's in between um, CPR. We shocked the patient multiple times. Um, you're able to see... Uh, us infusing everything and everything that we can, anything and everything that we can. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we weren't able to get this patient back. But what this really what this really pointed out to us, and the patient ended up being hyperkalemic, et cetera, et cetera, that in combination with having florid congestion um, didn't bode well. So uh, spectral Doppler, uh, it, what role does it play? Uh, it has a pretty significant role. And I think I like... Uh, one of the staff members, I think this is at Georgetown, he was, he was actually, Rory was one of the people that invented Vexus uh, and has been coming out with a lot of literature recently. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, demonstrating how looking at congestion may be another phenotype uh, in shock uh, in patients in the ICU, uh, having a congested phenotype versus a hypoperfusion phenotype. Uh, so using spectral Doppler, you have two options. We have three options, but at least uh, two for the kidneys. So pulse wave, uh, it's very specific. You have to align the gate exactly in the region that you want to acquire the information. Continuous wave Doppler, you're only looking at everything in, in that line. So you're really good for peak velocity, really good for regurgitant um, flow, uh, MR, AI, uh, tricuspid regurg, et cetera. Uh, is there aliasing with pulse wave Doppler? Absolutely, because it's looking at low velocity systems. And that's why we're using pulse wave Doppler in the kidneys. Uh, and both of these are angle dependent. So you are more prone to underestimate the velocity than overestimate the velocity in the kidneys. So keep that in mind. If you do see biphasic uh, motion, as you kind of see down here in this last uh, in this last row, 
that is probably a signal that you are developing congestion that's abnormal. Um, I, I would recommend initially not to get too much into the weeds on whether this is Vexus 1, 2, or 3. Uh, just kind of keep in mind that if you have biphasic waves uh, in, in any one of these splanchnic vessels, uh, after having an IVC that is very dilated, then that should definitely tell you or hint to you that there is congestion occurring. Okay, so that's why I give I give two stars to uh, I'll do that again. I give two stars to the pulse wave Doppler or three or four. Okay, all right. So why does venous congestion even matter or venous return? Uh, so in short, uh, and, and again, this kind of goes into a potential phenotype for shock. Impaired venous return leads to impaired perfusion. Come at me, bro, if you disagree. All right. Uh, why? Uh, the mean systemic feeling pressure has an interaction with the right atrial pressure. Uh, and this, is, this has been bore out over, over decades of research. Uh, so venous return, uh, the equation is fairly simple, uh, equals the mean systemic feeling pressure minus the right atrial pressure. If you have a very elevated right atrial pressure, you are going to diminish the amount of preload that you are able to give to the RV and in part the LV. Uh, this is a nice little paper uh, that uh, uh, I think it came from this guy. I'm not even going to try to butcher his name. Uh, but he, he kind of is, is giving us our Starling curve and our Gaetan, like I mentioned up at the front of the lecture, our Gaetan venous return curves, uh, demonstrating that the the smaller the gap between the mean systemic filling pressure and our right atrial pressure, the likely lower cardiac output that we're going to get. So I, I like this one in specific because it, it mentions septic shock, which will oftentimes have a very low right atrial pressure as evidenced by the reason why we oftentimes give so much volume uh, because we see a, a quote unquote collapsible IVC. It kind of gives us an idea that, hey, Maybe we could improve our perfusion if we fill up that right atrial pressure. There's a limit to everything. And, and oftentimes uh, it'll happen when people develop septic cardiomyopathy that we may need to de-resuscitate to decrease that right atrial pressure. So I don't want to belabor it. This is a whole lecture in its own, uh, but keep that in mind again. Is this a signal? Yeah, it's a signal. Uh, it's not just noise. It is just noise. It's kind of uh, every pun is intended in this lecture. Okay, uh, last question that I have for you guys. So a pulsatile portal vein and a renal vein that looks like a column, meaning it doesn't have systolic or diastolic differentiation, would be which one of these vexus scores? Don't think too hard. All right, Vexus 3. Uh, yeah, I can't disagree with you. I didn't give you that much information. So if the if the consensus is Vexus 3, sure. Uh, there's congestion. Vexus 2, yeah, there's congestion. Who cares? Yeah, sure. All right, nice work. <laughs> All right, uh, I didn't have anything worthwhile to write in this lecture. So just remember, you're awesome. You earned your Tuesday taco. Uh, when you're learning ultrasound, you have to get your reps in. 
Uh, oftentimes, I will see this image, and and the the trainee will say, "Hey, look, the IVC is is distended. It's like a lead pipe." Uh, and then I say, "Okay, well, we need to go back and and fix this." Uh, so uh, remember, if you're looking at IVC, make sure that you see the hepatic vein dumping into the IVC, and you'll oftentimes find the IVC going straight into the right atrium. So again, for the learners, get your reps in, have your things quality reviewed and get your tacos. Okay. So a lot of pitfalls, a lot of noise uh, whenever you're doing POCUS. Um, this is a patient that had a, a very distended IVC, but as you kind of see as we're rotating around, also had a big liver mass, which kept the IVC distended and basically tented open. So you should be very focused whenever you're doing POCUS. Try to answer a specific question. If you're just putting the probe on them to put the probe on them, uh, you'll, you'll be wrong. All right. Uh, this is another, this is another case that kind of threw me for a loop because there was a lot of, there's a lot of stuff, uh, spectral Doppler wise below the baseline. Uh, and all this, all this was chalked up to is that they were not congested. Uh, in this case, we, we put the pulse wave Doppler over the hepatic vein, um, and we actually saw we saw inversion of, of systole. Uh, so this is basically the equivalent of like a sine wave. So this is very severe congestion. So this would be, this would be, you know, quote unquote, vexus three. So uh, very congested uh, splanchnic venous system, likely causing some hypo perfusion. All right. Uh, this is a nice uh, pulse wave Doppler of the beans. Uh, we put color uh, over the area so I could kind of identify an area that was perfused. And oftentimes the goal is that you want to see renal artery, at least a signal of renal artery, uh, because the vein is going to run right next to it. And that gate is not specific enough to differentiate. So here we're actually seeing the same thing, kind of a sine wave uh, because of the severe congestion. And you want to get at least two cardiac cycles whenever you're doing, whenever you're using pulse wave, if you can't get two cardiac cycles, then you have to check yourself because you might actually just be getting artifact. Here's another, here's another renal ultrasound. So same thing, you kind of see color along the area that we're trying to focus in on. Uh, we're seeing the renal artery and, and below the baseline, we actually, so here we actually see the differentiation the differentiation between a systolic wave and a diastolic wave. This is not this is not severe as the last one where you see that kind of sine wave with the systolic inversion, but this does still demonstrate that there is some degree of congestion. Uh, and I know people use this. People will use this to both diagnose and to also monitor a patient in the ICU uh, while they're resuscitating. So, say if you have a patient that comes in with septic shock. Uh, you get an initial value that shows, hey, their IVC is collapsible or whatever, uh, and you start bolusing them volume. You can keep going, 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 and then you want to check on them a little bit later. If you start seeing this, you say, okay, well, we've probably done enough, if not too much, uh, and you may even consider de-resuscitation at that point. Uh, and that's all I got for you guys.